So this evening, I would like to talk about compassion. And in introducing the topic, I would like to say that I believe that mindfulness, the kind of clear seeing of mindfulness, and love are the same thing. Uh, There are many different kinds of love, and uh, Buddhist tradition has a lot of emphasis on love in its different, many different qualities. Um, but I believe that uh, when mindfulness and love are the same. The, um, one of the things that I've learned uh, through life, and partly it's been reinforced through interviews and these are kind of retreats, that one of the forms of suffering that can be quite... Um, challenging or difficult for people, for some people, is um, if as children they were not seen. And it's as if uh, they weren't loved, if they weren't seen properly. And so here we have an example of the kind of intimacy or the close connection between love and being seen. Um, in the, It's been said that the two wings of the Buddhist tradition are compassion and wisdom. And they can be seen perhaps as being two different things, compassion and wisdom. It's maybe useful at times to distinguish them as being different from each other. But I believe that um, there's a way in which they come together and not, not to be seen as being distinct. And one of the ways they, they come together is when they get it, both of them are imbo- embodied in the same person. You know, when we're, it's in our body, both the ability to be, or, or the wisdom or insight or discernment and compassion. And they're in the same body. So they're held within the body. There's a unity in being held in the same body. But uh, there's a wonderful image that uh, for me expresses this unity uh, even maybe better. I might have to explain it to you as I go, read it. There's a book by an English Dharma teacher named Sangha Rakshita. And he was a monk practicing in, in India, Nepal, China, in um, the 1950s. And he writes, I am reminded of a French Buddhist nun whom I knew in Kalampong in the 1950s. She told me that in her student days in Paris, she used to like visiting museums and art galleries, which is how she found herself eventually in the Guimet Museum of Oriental Art. She was rather militant. She was a rather militant, aggressive woman. She told me that she used to go around with a pair of ice skates with which to defend herself if she was attacked. Well, she said, I thought if I carried the skates with me, if anyone tried to attack me, I'd slash the blades across his face. But as she strode along the galleries of the Guimet, having left the skates in the cloakroom, looking to left and right rather fiercely, as she usually did, suddenly she encountered an image of the Buddha. From her description, I gathered it was an image of an ancient Cambodian Buddha. She just turned a corner And there was the celebrated smile, faint and delicate 
and rather withdrawn, so characteristic of this Khmer style of sculpture. The whole expression of the face is intensely peaceful. This image, the face of this image, just stopped her in her tracks. She told me that she stood looking at it without moving, almost without blinking, for 45 minutes. She couldn't take her eyes off it. The impression of peace, tranquility, and wisdom that emanated, that streamed, as it were, from those features, were so strong that she couldn't pull herself away. She hadn't yet studied anything about Buddhism, but as soon as she saw this image, she felt compelled to ask herself, what is it that gives its expression to this image? What is it trying to tell me? What depths of experience does it come from? What could the sculpture have experienced to be able to express something like this? Confronted by this embodiment of awakening, she could not move away unchanged. In fact, it determined the whole of her, the whole subsequent course of her life. And so I'd like to suggest that um, the, uh, the unity or the coming together of wisdom and compassion can be found in the smile of the Buddha. And um, the smile expresses both uh, compassion, wisdom, and also peace. And I think that that third piece of peace is a very important part to remember, that the experience of full compassion, full wisdom, can be experienced in a unity as a kind of deep peace, a deep sense of not being in conflict anymore with oneself and the world around us. And I think that uh, compassion is an essential aspect of practice as well as a fulfillment of practice. The cultivation of compassion is needed uh, because of the ways in which we are so much in conflict. Um, The greater the conflict, inner conflict with aspects of ourselves, parts we don't like, or conflict with the world around us, or sense of the suffering of the world around us, compassion is so much needed. And I think uh, when many of us think about Buddhism, we think, uh, you know, kind of, you know, we associate more, more often Buddhism with enlightenment. As a goal of Buddhism, ultimate goal is to be enlightened. And um, enlightenment and bust kind of attitude some people have. Or the people will say, oh, that person, she, you know, she realized some, a really deep enlightenment. And it's great. But how often do you hear someone say, you know, I got compassioned. Or that, or, or that person, you know, he, I think he reached the fourth stage, fourth stage of compassion. He was fully compassioned. Compassionment or bust. And I think perhaps we all need maybe more compassion than enlightenment if we want to separate the two. But if we don't separate the two, then compassion has to be an integral part of it, both enlightenment and the practice to it. When I first started uh, Buddhist practice, uh, when I was uh, young, 21 or so, um, I, you know, I knew what compassion, what the word meant. If someone said it, I would have understood them. You know, I spoke enough English. (laughs) 
but it wasn't part of my vocabulary, you know, my, my using vocabulary. I didn't really know what it was. You know, it wasn't something I related to. And when I started Buddhist practice in the Zen tradition, uh, I was much more oriented towards wisdom side, if you separate the two. And um, I remember my early, your first kind of year, kind of around San Francisco Zen Center, um, uh, I lost my girlfriend because of that. I had some wisdom, but I had no compassion. <laughs> and that's, that didn't work out. I realized many years later what I lacked. And, um, but my experience of a new Zen student in the first years of Zen practice was um, very much a confrontation with myself. I kind of met myself over and over and over again. And what I saw, what I met and met myself was a lot of suffering. And there was a lot of guilt. Uh, I, you know, after a while I thought that guilt was short for guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be, I'd be guilty. Just, I mean, imagine, I would, I would be guilty just the way I walked across the meditation hall floor. I felt I was doing it wrong. And the way I closed the door. You know, so it was pretty pervasive. And, um, and I suffered a lot, and I, I shed not a few tears um, on the cushion. Or Often the biggest tears were not on the cushion, but as soon as I can get out alone by myself, I would sob sometimes. And, um, and the thing about my Zen tr- uh, training, instructions, that I, I didn't get any instructions in Zen. You know, so, you know, what do you do with all the suffering that I had? What I, you know, you know, there wasn't these, you know, great, wise, vipassana things, you know, to do. There was nothing to do with it except suffer. (laughs) (laughs) And, and either because I was stupid or I had a lot of trust or faith or a combination of both or something, it never occurred to me to run away, (laughs) you know, from it. So I just would stay there, you know, I would sit and sit and sit with it all and sit with it and, and it just and it didn't occur to me it should be different <laughs> I, I was you know I didn't think about it too much I didn't think that you know I didn't, I didn't know I almost knew nothing about what could happen in meditation and that was a real blessing for me I look back at that and I was really glad how little I knew about what I didn't know about getting concentrated I didn't know about mindfulness I didn't all I knew was I was supposed to try to completely accept what was happening in the present moment and, at, and beyond that, I didn't have a clue what was supposed to happen. And um, so there I was, suffering. And I didn't, you know, many ways I suffered. And one of the things that I realized in retrospect was I started noticing compassionate images and people around me. And sometimes I projected it, and it wasn't really there. Uh, there was a, at the top of the steps at San Francisco Grand Center, there's a wooden sculpture that is actually a flame. That's what kind of looks like a flame. But I didn't, everyone ever told me that from, until many, many years later. And every time I walked up from meditation and saw that, I saw it as being an abstract uh, sculpture of the uh, Bodhisattva of compassion. <laughs> and... Um, and I, and I, you know, I gravitated towards certain Buddha images and Bodhisattva images that just seemed to emanate or express compassion. And, and sometimes I'd feel, I'd sense compassion in the breeze as a kind of 
move by my cheek or in different settings. And, and uh, it was somehow that, you know, it was something that I needed, but I didn't have any, you know, background in it. I didn't know about it exactly. So I didn't know how to do it. But somehow, unconsciously, intuitively, or somehow, I was kind of, you know, getting it, what I needed, and it's not projecting it or, trying, or some symbolically kind of seeing it around me so that I could, so I could be here. And this is very much what was starting to happen with me in my early Zen practice, where, where I was thinking I was getting, trying to cultivate wisdom in a sense. Really what was happening was I was being compassioned. And the really important part of my whole you know, early Zen practice, I look back at now, there's a lot of things that are important, but that was really precious for me. And I had no idea it was happening at the time. It was kind of something I realized in retrospect. I, after I left uh, three years of training at the Zen monastery, I saw the movie Gandhi. And I cried during the movie. And I had never cried in the movie before. And as I was leaving the movie theater, I said to myself, um, three years of Zen training and I'm a failure. It failed. And then the next thought was, no, it succeeded. You know, somehow my heart had been softened enough to be able to take in uh, suffering and be touched in ways. And so, you know, the part of that process of facing my own suffering and being with it, um, I probably at the time had no sense of its value. But there was a value for me, and the value was that it was softening me. It was humbling me. It was uh, learning me to be present for it. And it was awakening a capacity for compassion. And at some point um, near the end of my time, or part of the time in the Zen monastery, as this process of being compassionate was growing for me, um, it became so much a part of kind of I have to say this, um, it kind of grew and it became kind of the way in which it became became a motivating force for how I wanted to live my life. So it wasn't simply it was nice to have compassion, but the compassion itself then became a motivation, a very important motivation for me that uh, for how I was going to live my life. And eventually it led me to sitting up here and So compassion to mindfulness and love being the same thing. There's an interesting uh, quote, or quote, uh, a discourse by the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya. And it's a conversation he has with a uh, yaksha. Yaksha is kind of like a tree spirit or something like that. And this yaksha says uh, to the Buddha, in speaking in verse, Things are always good for one who is mindful. The mindful one grows in happiness. Each day improves for one who is mindful. The mindful one is free from hate. That sounds nice. Kind of a, kind of a pra- praise to mindfulness. But then the Buddha replies to this yaksha. And the Buddha says, 
Things are always good for one who is mindful. The mindful one will grow in happiness. Each day improves for one who is mindful. But the mindful one is not free from hate. The person who day and night delights in harmlessness and has loving kindness towards all beings is the one who has no hate for anyone. And I find this a quite a remarkable passage because it's quite easy sometimes to, to be so excited by the power of mindfulness to think that mindfulness is enough, that you can just keep practicing mindfulness and everything will be fine. And here the Buddha says, well, that's fine, but if there's hate, if there's aversion, if there's ill will, there's animosity, um, that uh, he, something else is also needed. And the Buddha is suggesting here what's needed is loving-kindness. And um, so to meet that with some kind caring. And it's so important because when there is hate or guilt or fear or shame or despair and all, all kinds of things that kind of happen, it's so easy to not like that part of ourselves to attack it, to be angry with ourselves for being that way, to feel it's a personal failing, to to be embarrassed, to be discouraged by it. And what is needed actually is is to somehow heal that sense of conflict with part of ourselves. To be in conflict with part of ourselves is a form of suffering, a very terrible form of suffering. So if you feel angry and then hate your anger, you're in conflict with yourself. And so, part of what mindfulness is, is to try to heal the divides within us that are caused by being in conflict with ourselves. Or in a sense, conflict with the world also. And so at times, what's needed is loving kindness. For me, loving-kindness was not something, the practice of loving-kindness was not something that uh, it came to me easily. Um, uh, again, it was not in my vocabulary and not really, didn't really know much about it or think much about it until I was introduced to Vipassana after many years of Zen practice. And um, when I first was in the Vipassana scene and they started talking about loving-kindness, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> that's not for me. <laughs> you know, that was it's kind of, you know, sentimental and artificial and saccharine and, you know, and, you know, and, and how, could you, how can you call forth that kind of thing, you know? And so, you know I'm just going to sit with the way things are. And um, to my surprise, sitting with how things are gave birth to loving-kindness, I think, I'm not exactly sure exactly, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure exactly how, but I believe that as you sit with how, we, how things are and start letting go of the conflict of, you know, start accepting in a sense what's there, not being in conflict with what's there, it kind of begins to soften the crusts in the heart, the divides in the heart. And it's the uh, innate in the heart, an open heart, it's innate and it's, its capacity to feel love and compassion is innate in the heart, even though it might be deeply buried inside of it. So then, as I was practicing uh, this vipassana, this loving kindness was born in me. 
And whereas the compassion in Zen was born from me being present for suffering, the loving kindness for me uh, in Vipassana was born through um, being with things as they are and kind of letting go of the divide, letting go of the conflict I had with things. And so then uh, loving kindness started arising and then I took to the practice. Once it started arising and I could identify it, then the idea of doing loving kindness practice started to become more and more natural. And it wasn't so much an artificial thing as it was a thing of kind of evoking what was already in the heart and appreciating it. So compassion and loving kindness, love, are considered wholesome qualities. One of the things we can cultivate, one of the things to be, to, to be delighted in, um, in practice, as Sharda uh, talked about last night, the cultivation of the wholesome. And it can be cultivated directly, or it can be cultivated just simply by continuing to show up and be present for what's here. And this is part of the beauty of suffering, is um, I don't want anyone to suffer, but there is a, a beauty or a beautiful possibility in suffering when we understand that opening to suffering, not being in conflict with suffering, being present for it, um, leads in two directions. It can lead to liberation, as the Four Noble Truths talk about, or, or and, it can lead to compassion. And if we cut off our connection with suffering, if we're unwilling to allow ourselves to feel our suffering, then um, we cut, up, cut off this wonderful possibility which the Buddha is offering us, which Buddhism offers. The instructions in Buddhism is to know your suffering well. There's, there's a nobility in, in knowing suffering. Or there's a sacredness in suffering if we know how to use the suffering as showing us the path. And if we try to avoid the suffering in unhealthy ways, then we're not going to see the path that's right there to step onto. So part of, um, certainly part of this practice is to, when it's there, to open to it. And I know that many of you struggle, like I struggle, I've struggled with suffering. And my suggestion to you is that can you find a way to be with it where you're not in conflict with it? where there's a kind of maybe an acceptance of it or some peace about it there or some willingness to let it do its thing. If you think that you can be in charge every single time about how to resolve your suffering, if you think you, you're going to figure out how to resolve it, I think you're going to spend a lot of time in mental machinations, thinking about and wondering, how, what, you know, and it's going to keep you in those cycles. There is something very profound about not always trying to make it go away or struggle with it or fight it or try to fix it or try to solve it, but simply to be present for how it is. Uh, Eugene gave a beautiful um, quote uh, early in the treatment. Maybe he wasn't doing walking instruction. I forget exactly when he did it, but it was a line from a poem by a Japanese um, poetess in the 10th century named Izumi Shikabu. And I think what he read was the part, uh, no part left out. And I think he must be referring to this poem. He must like it. Um, And she writes, Watching the moon at dawn. And whenever you hear a Japanese poem that refers to the moon, uh, it's in some way talking also about being 
enlightened, being liberated or being that kind of intimacy or fullness or sense of being deeply at home in this moment. So watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So that's kind of nice. But no part left out. What does that mean? Here's another poem by her. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. She's the ruined house. What is it that shines through the gaps in your ruined house? Although the wind blows terribly here, it's painful. She's talking about her pain. But the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. No part left out. So the image of the Buddha, smile. Thomas Merton, when he went to Sri Lanka, had a very important experience when he was walking beautiful passage he writes, walking barefoot across the moist grass and then coming suddenly upon these huge outdoor statues of the Buddha and um, and then seeing the expression in the face of one of them and seeing the smile of the Buddha. And he talks about in seeing that smile, seeing um, a smile of someone who no longer needs to refute anything and is no longer in contention with anything. So what is that kind of peace that's not opposed to anything? I know that Buddha had the capacity to say no at times, but was he then contentious? Or was he refuting anything? What is it to leave no, no part out? What is it for, to, for loving kindness and mindfulness to be the same? To meet what's here, as if it's okay for it to be here. Imagine how terrible your hate would feel if your hate felt that you hated it. (laughs) It's enough to make your hate want to hate more. (laughs) John talked about uh, the trust, trusting the process. And I think it's part of what I'm pointing to also that the process of waking up, the process of being attentive and, and to what is actually happening here is, opens us to a process of change. But if you want the change, you interfere with it. But it does open us to, to a process of change. And it's a process that can be trusted as we open and allow it to be. And who knows what currents are being cultivated and developed. Maybe for some of you, like it was for me, there there will be times when what's being cultivated is compassion. I've known people who have had very difficult retreats and have left the retreat thinking, well, you know, what was that about? (laughs) Or something like that. (laughs) And then um, I see them six months later and they say, you know, 
that was the most, one of the most important retreats I've ever been on. I didn't know at the time. But because of that uh, difficulty that I sat with and sat with and sat with, I now have this amazing capacity to meet someone else who's suffering. And it feels like such an important thing to have the patience and the acceptance and the ability to be there with someone else, to understand someone else. So, so you don't know what's opening, what's working through you. Or maybe what's opening is what's trying to move through you is peace. A sense of the kind of peace when we're not in conflict with each other. Compassion itself, as it blossoms, is an expression of peace or finds its expression in peace. If, if compassion makes us feel like a victim, I don't think that the compassion is fully matured yet. How is it that we can move towards, lean towards being at peace with ourselves and with all things? And the suggestion is that by paying attention, bringing awareness to what's here, and awareness and love can be the same thing. And so I wanted to talk about compassion or this way, to give this kind of talk, because um, it being New Year's Eve. And it's a time of significance, we say. And, and uh, a time to kind of reassess, re-resolve, recommit, re-review, our life and what we want it to be. And I think it, you know, in a, in a Buddhist context, at least, that compassion is one of the central values that can go into that kind of reassessment of our life and what our life should be about or can be about or how to meet our life. So I want to spend a little, that's partly, you know, it seems appropriate for the evening to bring it up and but I don't think we can have enough compassion. I think that the world is so full of the need of compassion that once, if it should happen, that you finally have enough compassion for yourself, then there's the rest of the world. And you'll never have enough because the world has a great need. But can you do that without the sense of being a victim, without being troubled by it? So that's easy. Something, something that comes off you easily. There's a Zen koan, a Zen story. Two monks are talking. And one asks the other, what is it like for Avalokiteshvara to have all those hands? Uh, some of you might have seen that Avalokiteshvara is a bodhisattva of compassion and in the paintings that sometimes there's a th- she has a thousand hands and each hand there's a different tool to meet the suffering of the world and help and in each hand there's an eye to see the suffering of the world. So she's the one who sees the suffering of the world. So what is it like for Avalokiteshvara uh, to have all those hands of compassion? What is it like for Avalokiteshvara to be compassionate is the question. And the second monk says, it's like 
rearranging the pillow in the middle of the night. It's, it's Zen, right? So. <laughs> but I, it's a very profound, you know, rearranging the pillow at night. You know, there's a kind of intimacy and ease and kind of, you're not, you're not self-conscious about it. You're not, you know, it's almost like you and the pillow are not different. It's just like the pillow, your head, you're uncomfortable, you bunch it up and you're hardly awake, right? <laughs> and uh, it can happen very easily. And so this idea of the ease, this is what it's like for Avalokiteshvara to respond compassionately to the world, that kind of ease, that kind of intimacy, that kind of that sense of separation. And one of, the, one of the values of suffering, of developing compassion, is, is to see in our suffering, see the universality of suffering, to see that it's not just a personal issue. And in seeing the universality of suffering, sickness, old age, death, to see ourselves as equals to others who suffer, to see ourselves equal in this world, the sea of suffering and joy that we find ourselves in. So not to hold ourselves aloof or distant or separate from it all, but to meet everyone, in a sense, as equals in that. So then the monk asks uh, the second question. He says, um, um, oh, I think I understand. It's like... um, um, Uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but uh, it's like having hands all over the body. Like all over the body. You know, everywhere, your skin, there's all these hands of compassion, hands that can respond and be sensitive and see. Remember, all these hands have eyes in them, can see and sense and experience the suffering of the world. And the other monk says, "Um, that's only 80% good answer. In Zen, they like to rate people's answers. <laughs> I was rated in Japan. 75%. <laughs> and um, so it was only 80%. And they say, well, what would you say? Said, oh, it's like having uh, hands, through, hands and eyes throughout the body. So not just on the surface, but throughout, to be that integrated. So this idea of being integrated, of, of holding it all. What is, you know, can you hold it all? Can you kind of allow it all to be there? Trust yourself enough, trust life enough, that you can sit and be still, or be at peace with what is here, as it is. Even when you're distracted, even when your practice is not working, can you then sit? Can you find some way not to be in conflict with yourself when practice is not working? Can you hold that also in the mindfulness, in the mindfulness and the love? And maybe that's what's needed at that time. Maybe at a time when you can least practice, what is needed is simply to hold that inability with tender care. There's a beautiful story from the Jewish tradition of a rabbi who's teaching his students, and he says, "In here at this school, we place the teachings 
on your heart. And the student asks, why don't you place it in our hearts? And the rabbi says, oh, only God can do that. Uh, We can only place it on your hearts, and when your heart breaks, the teachings fall in. I'd like to end with um, a story, Source Unknown. And it's not really about compassion, but it's uh, somehow I was reminded of this story and reflecting on this theme of compassion today. And it's a story that I like a lot. So I share a story that I like partly to share it with you. And I warn you, it is a little bit maybe too sweet or saccharine or something. But you'll forgive me for that. God decided to become visible to a king and a peasant and sent an angel to inform them of the blessed event. O king, the angel announced, God has deigned to be revealed to you in whatever manner you wish. In what form do you want God to appear? Seated on his throne and surrounded by awestruck subjects, the king proclaimed, How else would I wish to see God save in majesty and power? Show God to us in the full glory of power. God granted his wish and appeared as a bolt of lightning that instantly pulverized the king and his court. Nothing, not even a cinder, remained. (laughs) The angel then manifested herself as a peasant, or manifested herself to a peasant, saying, God deigns to be revealed to you in whatever manner you desire. How do you wish to see God? Scratching her head and puzzling a long while, the peasant finally said, I am a poor woman and not worthy to see God face to face. But if it is God's will to be revealed to me, let it be in those things with which I am familiar. Let me see God in the earth I plow, the water I drink, the food I eat. Let me see God in the faces of my family and neighbors. God granted the peasant her wish, and she lived a long and happy life. May God grant you the same. So... um, May it be that mindfulness and love is the same for you. And when it's not, may it be that you're aware of that with mindfulness and love. And if it's not, let it be as it is. (laughs) And may you, in the food you eat, the steps you take, the breaths you take, the feelings you have, the thoughts you have. May you in each of those that arise see the Dharma. See the Dharma so you don't have to be in conflict with anything. And in not being in conflict, may you come to peace. So let's sit for a moment.
This talk was given by Gil Franz Dillett Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 31, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.